planning on starting on Hosea, um, but that will probably be next week. Um, but today, something a little different. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you are true, that you know what we need, you know how to meet those needs, and that you speak to us, that you want to have that personal relationship with us. Um, and you've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've given us directives of what we should do. And Lord, it's easy to forget how awesome you are and how powerful to speak the world into existence, to love us uh, so fully, and to give yourself for us, to save sinners like us so that we could have a, a life in heaven with you, enjoying your presence even now. Lord, I pray you'd fill us with your spirit and that you'd minister to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, I was able to teach at the church that I grew up in, and I taught from Exodus 15. And this passage almost follows the same flow. It, it begins with Moses' song of praise to the Lord, because God triumphed over the Egyptians. And uh, the people, when they faced that trial, they didn't view it in light of God's deliverance from Egypt. And then when they came to, so they're all rejoicing and celebrating, and they come to the bitter waters of Marah. And those bitter waters brought out bitterness in God's people. So three days removed from celebrating on the beach and triumphing over their enemies, they're complaining against Moses, like, we need water. Where's the water? And they were bitter. And they didn't view that bitter water in light of God's miraculous salvation, that he's a deliverer and he's awesome. They had these expectations that, well, water is going to be plentiful, but God wanted to teach them that they needed him more than water, that through him they would have everything supplied that they needed, that he could heal them of their bitterness just like he healed those waters. So we'll be in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45. The flow of this passage, it bears a resemblance because these disciples who were in the midst of a stormy sea, they had just seen Jesus feed. They had been part of the miracle of him feeding 5,000 men and women and children with five loaves and two fish. They had been part of this miracle. And yet, they seemed to lose all sight of who Jesus was. They missed the sign because signs are intended to give directed a direction. We use signs to orient ourselves, to point to something. Like a sign is more important than just itself. It's pointing to something. And so the miracle that Jesus did, it was pointing to the fact that he is God. He is the living bread that's come down from heaven. He's the one who will sustain them. He's the one who will give them salvation. Jesus did many miracles that were signs to direct people to look to him, to know that he is without a doubt, to draw that conclusion that he is the Savior, he is the Messiah. As followers of Christ, we too need to remember that the current trial that we're facing, the difficulty, it's always to be viewed in light of what Je who Jesus is and what he has already accomplished. We, it doesn't start with the trial. You know a movie that you watch and it starts with this action sequence? That's not the beginning of the story. There was a lot of preparation that led to that moment. We're, we're thrust into that one scene as the beginning. And that's not how trials are for us because we come from victory. God has given us victory. 
and he's given us life and salvation. Our current suffering, it's not the beginning of our Christian experience because Jesus has purchased us. He has washed us. He has cleansed us. He's given us his spirit. And we can be of good cheer because he has overcome the world. He is our peace now and forever. Mark 6, starting in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Jesus has just fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, and he directs his disciples to cross to the other side of the Sea of Galilee toward Bethsaida. They were in the northeast side of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and they were going to the northwest side. So it wasn't a huge amount of travel time. And uh, Jesus, he sends the multitude away, and then he goes to the mountain to pray. On the heels of this miracle, he's not looking for accolades or, you know, pats on the back like, wow, that was pretty incredible. He, he, says, he sends everyone away, and he goes up to the mountain in solitude. But he's not alone because he's praying to the Father. And the disciples, though they felt alone, they weren't alone. He was watching for them, and I believe he was praying for them too. Verse 47, Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. Darkness falls, Jesus remains on the mountain, the boat is now in the middle of the sea. Jesus had told them to cross over to the other side, but the wind, it said, was against them. It was blowing against them, providing that resistance. If the wind was behind them, they could have used their sail to go quickly to their destination, but instead they had to row, and it was not going quick. I'm thinking about, like, there were some disciples who were fishermen, but there were eight of them that were not fishermen, probably, up to eight, and uh, probably pretty green. And even the fishermen, I don't know how in shape they were for rowing. In the middle, like in, in night, when the wind's against you, it's a bit choppy. I can imagine before very long, these guys were puffed. Their legs were cramping, their hands are blistering. And Jesus sees them straining. And he's up on the mountain. And he's just watching them. I wonder if they're thinking, like, where is Jesus now? Well, what, what's he up to? He sent us out here. We're not making any headway. It'd be nice for him to be with us. Jesus was praying, and they were rowing. It doesn't say that they ever prayed while they were rowing. They didn't, it doesn't say they prayed before they rowed. It doesn't say they cried out to God for help while they were rowing. They were just doing their best, and it wasn't accomplishing much. It wasn't far to go. They figured, hey, we can handle this ourselves. They hadn't counted on the wind putting up so much resistance, but, or really they're powerless to, over, to overcome the wind. But they were going to put in a good effort, and they did for hours. And I wonder if we can identify with the disciples in this passage. God's given them a directive, and he's also given us a directive too. But try as we might, there might not be much measurable progress, because that's something we look for, right? We encourage ourselves with little steps. We see things improving, and so we take a bit of confidence to move forward because we see progress, not because we're trusting God. 
all this straining at the oars. It was exhaustion, pain, thoughts of, we can't do this. Why are we doing this? Why it, shouldn't we just wait? This isn't the time to be rowing across a lake. I imagine they thought about giving up as they were being pushed around by winds beyond their control. And many times I have felt just like the disciples in this boat, where I'm straining at the oars. I'm trying to do the thing God told me to do, but there's resistance and there's difficulty, and I don't seem to be making much progress at all. And God's used circumstances, and I can say over the last few years, that my best efforts aren't good enough, that I'm incapable of doing the first things that he asks me in my own strength, that I'm insufficient, I'm incapable to do anything to advance his kingdom or even help someone. You think, I should be able to help someone, but you can't. I can't. And that, that just that begins to hit home when you say, I'm doing my best. I'm trying my hardest, and it doesn't seem to be doing much. It doesn't seem to be making a difference. So much is out of control. The rogue waves are coming over the ship. It's getting a bit swamped. You're holding onto those oars for dear life. You know, you're gripping those things, but your hands are blistered and you're tired and it's late. After hearing this passage read during the conference, I confess, like, yeah, that's a fitting illustration of how I feel sometimes, trying to do what God has called me to do. And God said, he just said to my heart, there's people at Calvary, Sydney in the same boat. And it's funny that we can be in the same boat, but we can feel all alone. Jesus sees them. They're struggling at the oars. It's the fourth watch of the night. It's between 3 and 6 a.m. So they've been in the boat for about eight hours plus, rowing, not making much headway, physically, emotionally spent. Jesus comes to them not in a power boat, not in another boat, like rowing, like see how easy this is, guys? He comes to them walking on the water, which is pretty awesome. The distance wasn't a problem, the wind, no hindrance. He knew where he was going. It's dark, but he, he's walking right towards them. And he did things only God can do in feeding the people and walking on this stormy sea. And verse 48, it contains this intriguing statement. It says that he would have passed them by. Did this mean he was ignoring them? or he was kind of showing off a bit. He was racing ahead to the shore like, I'm going to beat you guys. And... But there's two times in the Old Testament where this same phrase is used. God passing by. The first is with Moses on Mount Sinai. If you want to turn your Bibles to Exodus 33, starting in verse 20. Moses had gone up on the mount. The children of Israel had broken his commands. He had subsequently broken the tablets of stone and returned to the mountain to meet with God. And during that time, during that time of fellowship, the 40 days on the mount, he said, please show me your glory. Exodus 33, verse 20. But God said, you cannot see my face. For no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. 
God says, you cannot take the full weight of my glory. It will kill you. So I'm going to protect you. I'm going to put you in that cleft of the rock, and I'm going to pass by. And you'll see, like, as I pass by, you'll see my back. After his glory passed by, it said that Moses' face shone with an unnatural radiance, that he went down and spoke to the people, that they were like, whoa, they, they were freaked out because his face was glowing, because he had been in the presence of God. And so when he spoke to the people, thereafter he wore a veil before he spoke to the people, so they weren't put off by that hue he had going on. And then when he spoke to God, he'd remove the veil and speak with him. The second time this occurs is when Elijah was fleeing from uh, the threats of Jezebel and the aftermath of God's victory on Mount Carmel. If you want to turn to 1 Kings 19.11. So 1 Kings 19. Despite this miraculous victory by God over the prophets of Baal and its, his prophets, Elijah wished to die. He had been used by God, but he felt very alone. He had been working really hard, but it didn't seem to be making much difference in the community and in the people. After a 40-day journey, strengthened with divinely provided food, he arrives at this cave in 1 Kings 19:11. God speaking again. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? God passed by Elijah. The rocks are torn in pieces by a wind. That would be a pretty strong wind. The earth is quaking. A fire blazes up. But it says God was not in any of these things. Then God spoke in a still, small voice, and he recognized that. He drew near to God in reverence. And God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? God had not sent Elijah there. But I figure he felt much like those disciples pulling at those oars with those forces against them because of what he says. He laments how the people had forsaken God's covenant. He says, I've been true to you, God. I've done what you've told me to do, but people have forsaken your covenant. They've pulled down your altars. They've killed your prophets. He felt at, at the mercy of a culture that opposed God and hated him, that threatened his very existence. But God showed that it was not only powerful enough to tear the mountain in pieces with wind or to shake it, but that he knew Elijah and that he spoke to him right where he was at and just asked him that question, what are you doing here, Elijah? He was right where Elijah was in that solitary cave. Elijah's thoughts were focused on his zeal for God that seemed pointless but God directed him to look to him, and he gave him some things to do. Like, I'm not done. I still have work for you to accomplish that I want to do through you. So let's go. Get going. 
I found that when discouragement comes, it's often because we're focused on ourselves. We're focused on others. We think about the effort that we're expending and how little seems to come from it. The winds of a culture and people antagonistic towards God, it blows into our faces and it it pushes us back and it puts us off. And we can be disillusioned when we're expecting to see some sort of progress, something we can measure either in our sanctification or in our ministry or in, uh, with personal relationships. And our discouragement comes when our eyes drift to look to others, either comparing us with them, which the Bible says is not wise, where it's like they seem to be doing well, but I'm struggling. Or when we hear of other people doing it tough that we'd expect to be pushing through without a problem. That also discourages us. When we hear reports of believers where their marriages are failing or they're falling away, there's these situations that seem so out of control and there's nothing we can do about it. There's this present pain that crowds out the memory of God's promises and what he has done and who he is, that he is God, the one who spoke heaven and earth in existence, the one who walks on the water to come to his disciples who were straining. Just, and they were straining for one night. It wasn't like they strained for years. They strained for a night, and he still came to them. When we're feeling like we're in, we may not feel like we're even in the boat, like we've lost the oar. We chucked that long ago. It's just our flotation device now, and we are, our head's gone over, under a few times. We're wondering, like, where, when is the help going to come? How am I going to even endure this? Well, we're lost in the dark. You know, there's no Coast Guard. No one's coming for you. That's how we feel. Back to Mark chapter 6, verse 49. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. For they were, all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. After eight hours rowing, I imagine the disciples were feeling it. I don't know if you guys have ever rowed anywhere. But if you've rowed for like half an hour, you'll definitely feel it the next day if you're unaccustomed to such uh, activity. And uh, if you're doing it for eight hours, I mean, doing anything for eight hours straight is tough, but they were feeling it. As they're pulling on the oars, because your back is usually to where you're rowing to, they see walking towards them and past them this kind of ghostly figure walking across the lake in the early dawn of the morning. And they all saw it, so it wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't like, I'm so tired from rowing, I think I'm seeing things. They're like, oh, well, I see it too, and this isn't good. And they all start screaming in terror. It's interesting that at this moment, I don't think there's anyone they would rather have seen than Jesus. He's right there, but they don't recognize him. They don't recognize him in that moment because they didn't believe it was possible. How could that be a person? How could that be Jesus walking on the water? In our struggles, we can forget that Jesus can do anything. Our aching muscles and our blistered hands, they speak louder sometimes than our faith. But Jesus identifies himself. He says, be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. He doesn't chide them for their forgetfulness or their inability to row. He doesn't glare at them in disapproval and give them the silent treatment because they haven't been doing as well as they should. 
They haven't really made the progress that he expected by now. There's none of that there. It's almost cheerful, the thing that he says to them. He knew they were struggling. He saw them straining. It's ironic. The figure that frightened them was Jesus himself. Since Jesus is with us, we don't need to be afraid, regardless of how hard it's been. Now, if Jesus said to you today, be of good cheer, don't be afraid, how would you answer? Would you say, well, I'm actually quite justified to be afraid, given my circumstances. If I were to tell you what's really happening, (laughs) that would be ironic saying that to Jesus, who knows exactly what's going on. He sees the end of the trial that we're in. He knows where he's taking us how you haven't slept well, how your body's racked with pain, how fruitless your efforts have been, we can trot out this list of reasons why I feel the way I do. Or perhaps your answer would be more like mine, one of denial. Like, who's afraid? Not afraid out here. You startled me is all. I wasn't expecting you to be standing there, Jesus, walking on the water. Like, what could give you that impression? I mean, that shriek that came from me, I think, It could have come from Peter, but it came from me. Um, Yeah. We may deny we're afraid, but in all honesty, we're easily alarmed by the things we hear, by the things that happen, by how we feel, by present troubles. Praise the Lord Jesus, who is our life. He overcomes all fears. He has overcome the world. He says, be of good cheer. I have overcome. It's something he has accomplished. 1 John 5, 5, it says, Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So it's not about what you've accomplished. Your faith overcomes the world when you trust in Jesus and anything the world can throw at you because Jesus has overcome. We're overcomers not because we feel invincible or because we're making measurable progress or seeing results, but because of who we are in Christ by grace and who he is how he is for us. It's not based on how we feel or how the wind's blowing. Verse 51, Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. As they toiled all night in obedience to Christ, Jesus walked on the water, would have passed them by, even as God did at other times. But Jesus did not come to the disciples as a shining light or a small, still voice. He came to them as Jesus Christ, the man, Emmanuel, God with us, and he entered the boat. He climbed into their boat with them. Isn't that amazing? In the struggle, in the difficulty, he... he, Would have passed them by, but he joins them. It wasn't just a demonstration of what he could do, but that he cared for them. He climbed into their boat when and where they least expected him. Even when they hadn't recognized him, they hadn't cried out for him, they hadn't called for him, there he is in the boat. I imagine all of us would love to be marked with the radiance of God. You've spent so much time in prayer that your face is literally shining. And you're like, see, I have seen the face of the Lord. Like, whoa, 
that's pretty impressive. Whoa. Pious man that you are, or woman. Or to say, I audibly heard God speak. Like I've got it on the tape right here. You can hear it. God spoke to me. He said, what are you doing here? And, but he said it to me. Like he didn't say it to you, so I feel pretty special. We would love to be able to walk on the water. Wouldn't we love to have that? That would be a good party trick. You just walk across the water and people are going, wow. Like it's because of God I can do this. Wow, that's pretty impressive. But Jesus has given us something much better than a glowing face or having audibly heard him or the ability to do a miracle. He is with us. He's with us in the trial and the difficulty. While we're straining to do the thing he calls us to do, he, he comes to us and he speaks to us. And he says, it is I. It harkens back to I am who I am. He is God and he's with us. And he hasn't left us alone because he's given us his Holy Spirit who fills us. As we strain at the oars, we forget Jesus is God who promised, do not be afraid. I will never leave nor forsake you. Jesus climbs into the boat. Something happens. The wind stops. What's the response of the disciples? It says they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Their minds were just completely blown. They looked at him with wonder and admiration. Mark says they marveled because they had not understood the point of the loaves. They hadn't understood why Jesus did what he did. Jesus had compassion on the multitude. He has the five loaves and the two fish. Every piece of broken bread that Jesus gave to the people was distributed by his disciples. They held it in their hands. Jesus holds that bread. He blesses it. He breaks it. He starts giving it to the disciples to distribute. But they didn't understand the point of it, that it was miraculous, and only God can do what he was doing. They hadn't connected the miracle with the deity of Christ. And because they hadn't understood the implications of what Jesus was pointing to by that deed, they were shocked that he was walking on the water and that he came to them, that he could even find them because they felt lost and alone. If he could turn water into wine, if he could feed 5,000 people with five bread and two fish, he could walk on the water. There's this unescapable conclusion these signs are pointing to that he is the Christ, the Savior. The anointed one of God promised God made flesh, the one who would purchase them, who loved them, the one that would able, was able to save them. Now, what is not mentioned in the Gospel of Mark is that this is the time when Peter also walked on the water. Some say that uh, John Mark heard, uh, well, spoke with Peter concerning some of the things and maybe Peter for whatever reason, did not include this detail. But if you turn to Matthew 14, starting in verse 28, we see, we'll just have a little diversion and read this a little bit. Matthew 14, starting in verse 28. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, 
Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. I love that Peter receives exactly what he asks for, that invitation to join him on the water. He's saying, if you're the Christ, if you're Jesus, call me to come out to you. And he says, come on. Verse 30, but when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. Peter begins to sink. He cries out to God, cries out to Christ to save him. Jesus catches Peter by the hand. He gently rebukes him for his lack of faith. He asks, why did you doubt? Well, the wind for one. That wind is pretty strong. The fact I'm in open water and I don't have a life jacket, uh, that I'm sinking, all these reasons plus more. But when we look into the eyes of Jesus, realizing he is our Savior, he is God, and he asks, why did you doubt when I'm like holding you by the hand? There's really not a good answer to that, is there? Not a sensible one. But we're not always sensible. I am not always sensible. You know, two chapters previous in the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 4, verse 40, there was a time where Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves and they ceased. And the disciples were amazed. They're like, wow, that's amazing that you did that. So two chapters later, in chapter 6, they forgot about that. And we can forget, too, that Jesus is the one who saved us in the past, and he can save us now. Back to Mark 6.53, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. After Jesus entered the boat, the wind ceased. They were able to cross over. They arrived at their intended destination. I imagine it was a great feeling after a very long, tough night to put down that anchor and to say, whew, we're finally on the shore. We are where we were. It's exhausting, but we're here. Glad that's over. I bet it was a better feeling still to know Jesus Christ is the Son of God and worthy of all worship, the one who comes to us in our time of need to save us. In him, we find an anchor for our souls, hope that uh, grievous trials and weariness and toil cannot rob us of. We don't need to lose heart, even if our suffering seems to drag on, because the Lord is with us. And I have a few takeaways from the passage. So number one, Jesus sees us straining. Jesus sees when we're straining. The disciples felt capable to row across this lake, but they ran into trouble. Has it occurred to you that the current strain or the struggle that you're in right now has been allowed and perhaps even ordained by God to accomplish something? That he is using that to point to himself that you would grow into a deeper trust and commitment to him because of who he is. So you might see him do the miraculous, that your faith could be stronger. The disciples, they were just thinking of moving the boat from one dock to another dock. That was it. Get it from one place to another. But Jesus had a whole nother level that he was working on. He wanted to bring them to a place of exhaustion and recognition of need. As he prayed on the mount, he's watching them from a distance. He sees them straining. 
Number two, Jesus comes to his own. After praying, Jesus does the unthinkable, and he walks to them on the water. At no point, again, did they cry out to God or pray? They did cry out in fear when they saw Jesus thinking he was a ghost. No matter what situation we're in, Jesus sees, he's able to help us. Now, if you're out on the water and you call the Coast Guard, it's great that you could have um, them to come and help you. Marine rescue to help bail out, you bail you out of your vessel that's sinking. But Jesus does what no training can ever do. He causes the wind to stop. Like he changes the situation completely. And he brought them to their next destination. Even if we're pushed around, even when we don't have strength, he comes to us. He knows you as his own. Number three, Jesus speaks words of comfort. He's able to speak above the wind and the waves and the slap of the oars and their shrieking. He's able to communicate his presence, that he's there and not to be afraid. He is the self-existent one, the ruler of all, the creator of heaven and earth, the one that the wind and the waves obey. Before him, all demons tremble. Like we have an awesome God. In Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He's conquered Satan. One day he's going to cast death into the lake of fire. This is power beyond compare. I like what 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 5 says, that he is the God of all comfort. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. So in the trial, that's where the comfort is. That's where consolation is through Christ. And finally, number four, Jesus gets into our boat. I'm confident as he's praying, he's praying for them. He's praying for those disciples, straining. He knows what he's going to accomplish. He knows what he's capable of. He knows what his plans are. They have no idea. They're just trying to go from point A to point B, doing the best they can in the dark, not making headway, but Jesus comes to them. They lacked faith. They were clueless. He would have passed them by as he did with Moses or Elijah, but he does something different here. He gets into the boat with them. He entered into their trial despite their lack of faith, despite their lack of understanding. What grace. Would that we learn to rely upon the Lord moving forward, not in our strength or in our own wisdom. So today we will remember our Lord's death. We'll proclaim it until he returns by receiving communion together. Could you please turn to 1 Corinthians eleven, twenty-three? God made the world good, but man rebelled against God. God saw man mired in sin, lost and headed to hell for eternity. So Jesus climbed into our boat by putting on human flesh, by coming to us. Jesus was sent by the Father to suffer and die on the cross, to atone for sinners, 
So if all who repent and trust in him will be born again and have eternal life through Christ. After three days, Jesus rose triumphant from the grave, defeating sin and death, the schemes of Satan. We know that he's ascended to heaven. He's now preparing a place for us to be with him. And whatever place we find ourselves, you can go through scripture, whether it's in the furnace of affliction. This morning I was reading Daniel where uh, it said the angel shut, God sent the angel to shut the lion's mouths so they could not harm him. And Darius is like, oh, Daniel, is the God that you serve continually able to save you? And he said, there's no God that can deliver after this sort. Whether you're trying to row a boat against the wind, whether you're facing tragedy like Naomi, who was embittered because she lost her husband and her two sons. And she's like, I went out full, but I've come back empty. I'm not the same woman. God has dealt bitterly with me. And she was bitter. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Because life's been tough. When we're pressured to compromise like Daniel... And he purposed in his heart that he would not sin, he would not defile himself. When we pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit, he fills us. When we ask for salvation, Jesus saves us. And we need him now. We need him. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We enter into triumph over sin and death at the cost of Christ's shed blood, that he died so we could live. And he asks that we remember and we proclaim his death in full because that price has been paid. He has paid that price that we owed. And so our hope, our help, our salvation, it's anchored in who Jesus is and what he has done. He is the light of the world. He speaks to us in a still small voice. And even now he stands in our midst. He's climbed into the boat with us and he bids us Trust him. Be of good cheer. It is I. Don't be afraid. So if you identify with those disciples, let's confess our unbelief that we haven't understood what we're doing, that we need him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to be our Savior, that he hasn't just passed us by, but he's come into the boat with us. You've seen us straining. You know the difficulties that we are facing right now. And we thank you that you have sent Jesus to shed his blood, to demonstrate your love for us sinners. And that he prepares a place for us even now, that where he is, we might be also. Lord, we rejoice in your salvation. And we thank you for our Savior. Lord, forgive us when we have been like those disciples who figured, I got this, and we just started rowing, and we're trying and struggling and not, not able. We are not able, Lord, but you are. Thank you that you come to us 
and that you're gracious to us. Thank you for your help and your comfort and your presence. Lord, I pray you would fill us with your spirit, that we would throw ourselves wholly upon your mercy because we need you for salvation, for life, for wisdom, for sanctification. We need you, Lord, for everything. So we bow before you humbly. We praise you because you are the great God. You are the Almighty, the one who has come to seek and to save the lost, our Savior and King. We bow before you and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.